Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hello, and welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons podcast series. I'm Ben Stronick, and will be serving as the host on today's topic. I'm a practicing orthopedic surgeon in Jackson, Mississippi, and I'm a member of the AUKUS Patient Education Committee. Our role is to provide educational material for the members of AUKUS to share with their patients, and our content can be found at hipknee.aahks.org. We are fortunate today to be joined by two of our AUKUS leaders. Hi, Ben. This is Lowry Barnes. I currently serve as the Chair of Orthopedics at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences and as President of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. Look forward to the discussion. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me today. Uh, I'm Brett Levine. I am the chair of the Patient Education Committee and a member of AUKUS. I am a hip and knee surgeon as well, and uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Thank you both for joining us. We're going to jump right in. Our goal today is to discuss how the current coronavirus pandemic has affected elective surgical procedures such as hip and knee replacement and what you can do to help your patients manage during this time. I'd like to start with both of you updating our members on what new roles you have undertaken in the midst of this crisis. Ben, thanks. Seems like I used to be a hip and knee surgeon because I have taken on a much different role. I've been involved in hospital and campus leadership for some time. I also serve as the assistant vice chancellor for strategy for our system. And strangely enough, also as interim chair of OB. So I've been wearing different hats for a while besides my department and being a hip and knee surgeon. Fortunately, I'm blessed by an absolute great department and I'm able to do other things as well. So I was um, tasked with leading our surge for COVID. So we, I have learned more about airflow and ICU units, et cetera, than I have known in my medical career. And then I just recently took on the task of working out our return to work program once this surge is over. So how does the university go back to business again? So I, I have um, been spending pretty much all day, every day, and most evenings working on those issues, as well as trying to take care of patients. Yeah, I've been doing basically the same thing. Not quite to the extent that you're doing where the administrative work is probably not quite as extensive, but certainly we're working on how to ramp back up. We're also working on protocols and such for our residents and our fellows to participate in helping out. Uh, fortunately, at this point, they haven't called on me to help out at all within the hospital as far as covering the ICU, but some of our residents have covered the ICU and some of the fellows have covered the emergency room. But right now, it seems like our numbers are holding steady, which is very fortunate. So they, they haven't asked me to do that. So trying to take care of patients through telehealth and, and other things, doing occasional surgeries for emergencies, and, and that is keeping me pretty occupied right now. I'm sure you're doing very much like we are, Brett, and that your approach to education has changed too. It's amazing how much work we're doing by way of Zoom and other similar entities so that we can educate our residents. Our conferences are actually quite good now. I think I enjoy them better now than before. It's really nice to be able to be in your own space have a conference, actually be able to hear everyone speak and see the x-rays well. And I think we'll see that many of the things we're doing from an educational standpoint, we continue. We actually still interact with our research team as well and do that in a similar fashion. So it seems to be working pretty well for us. I'm, I'm sure you all are doing very many similar things. 
it's been great. The Zoom has really been something that's been fantastic for conference. I think more of us make conference now than, than we ever did in the past. So it's great having all the opinions. And we're even having some people from different institutions chime in. It, it's been great. Ben, are you guys doing anything different? We're in a similar situation where we have not had a huge spike yet, and we have not had to have orthopedic surgeons into the ICUs yet or the emergency department, but we're certainly prepared for that. And I think a big part of this is just being prepared, and we're at a large institution that handles a lot of the disaster management in Mississippi. We've got a solid plan in place. Most of us are on hold and just working on the administrative side to try to keep things rolling and getting ready for what this looks like when it's all over. I'd like to move into the surgery arena, and as most of our listeners are likely aware at this point, elective surgeries in the United States and a large number of other countries have been stopped. Can you both please give some information to our listeners as to why we've halted elective surgery? Sure, Ben. There are a number of reasons. One, we don't want to put our patients at risk. The challenge has been We don't really know who has COVID. We're learning more. We're learning more about false positive rates with asymptomatic patients, et cetera. We know that fever matters, but we certainly don't want patients to be exposed to COVID if they don't need to be. We don't want to bring somebody in for surgery who actually has been exposed and may develop COVID symptoms and become ill in the hospital. But for me, one of the most compelling reasons why all of us should be not should not be doing elective surgery now is simply PPE resource management. To think that we could get in a situation where we didn't have what we needed to protect our frontline workers because elective surgery had been done would truly be indefensible in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. That's one of the biggest concerns is is straining the healthcare system even more than it already is strained. And even in doing trauma cases, which I just did today, we had to wear the respirator mask in the operating room. We'd rather not do elective surgeries and have to use that mask in the OR, changing it in between each case. I mean, that's a big use of resources that people need. And so besides spreading the disease, I think it's a a great idea for us to be keeping this to only emergencies and things that are super urgent because we really need to be very aware of our healthcare system and the strains on it. What surgeries are you guys currently doing and how are you making those decisions at your institutions as to when you should operate and when we should delay? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we all struggle with that because I think we're all pretty much in agreement. It's that we're not doing elective primary hips and primary knees and they're just not being done in our institution. And most of the surgeons in our state are no longer doing those. We were one of the early groups to abide by and the Surgeon General's request and then the CDC and then our governor. But we got in the, on the bandwagon early and within two days of the suggestion, we were no longer doing primary total joints. Some in the state initially were saying, well, if, if it means they don't take narcotics, is that a reason? We really don't think so. We just continue our non-narcotic approach to arthritic joint management and try to keep them on board and realize that we're going to get to them when we can. But as far as Certainly, we're doing periprosthetic fractures. We're doing infections that are referred to us. And there have been a couple of impending fractures associated with severely failed implants that were sent to us. But otherwise, the total joint surgeons aren't operating right now. We do some total hips for femoral neck fractures. Agreed. That's about what we're doing right now. We even have a committee to kind of keep us in check. 
where um, all cases have to flow through the committee, which involves our chairman, Josh Jacobs, and then usually some one other person, just to make sure that we're not trying to pull a fast one and slip an elective case in there or a case that's really not an emergency. Fortunately, everyone in our institution has been very good about it, and we are limited to doing infections, impending fractures, periprosthetic fractures, fracture cases, femur fractures, hip fractures, fractures around the knees are the ones that I'll typically do right now. So it's not a lot, but we're, we're trying to do our best to, to not strain the healthcare system, but still take care of patients. Yeah, Brett, we do the same thing. I left that part out. So each day, the OR sends me the schedule for the orthopedic surgeons have scheduled. They're usually one to four cases on there other than our trauma surgeons. And then I review those to make sure that they're appropriate. The other from the department standpoint, we're doing trauma and we're doing cancer work as well. We're doing something very similar. We have a panel with our chair along with the OR leadership that reviews each case and we're doing something very similar. I think obviously very important for us as hip and knee surgeons that if you do have that patient come in with a femoral neck fracture, to get to them as soon as we can, get them up and mobilized and out of that healthcare system where they're utilizing resources, but also to get them out of there so we don't get them sick. Yeah. Have you decreased the number of people in the operating room with you? So you're using less PPE as well? We have. We've limited our staff help along with uh, whether we have a resident or fellow with us to be at a bare minimum to get that case done and try to protect our staff along with the patient. Yeah, I think that's been doing as well. And we find ourselves operating with much less help than usual. Yeah, we're doing the same thing, trying to minimize the people in the operating room, the nurses, the recovery room. Everything's kind of pretty bare right now and running at a minimum, but enough to keep us going for what we need to do. Interestingly enough, as part of the surge plan we put in, still not knowing how many ventilated patients we're going to be required to take care of from a COVID experience, we have actually made our PACU into the next level of ICUs. And so we're now training our PACU nurses to be ICU nurses. So we can't run very many patients through our PACU right now anyway. You had mentioned earlier about non-narcotic conservative management for patients. And I would like to see what both of you would recommend for our patients that have hip and knee arthritis that cannot currently have surgery due to the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, we pretty well go back to the basics. And if you've done much mission work, you've done, I know many of us have participated in Operation Walk, we know that patients can get around with pretty bad total arthritic joints waiting for their joint replacement. And so we'll tell patients to get crutches, get a walker use a wheelchair, whatever you have to do to take the stress off your joints if you're hurting that much. Take Tylenol, take Advil. We've been very careful. We rarely call in any prescription medications. We use over-the-counter medications. And um, we encourage them to eat anti-inflammatory type foods, tomatoes, grains, nuts, those type things, and use ice if it helps. And to limit their weight-bearing activities so that can decrease their pain, but also to do some exercising, whether it's range of motion, if it's your knee, doing straight leg raises, quadriceps exercises, stationary bicycling, and trying to stay somewhat active. Yeah, we're doing basically the same thing. Um, Pretty much anything that in the past has worked for them is we're telling them to do. Whatever that is, do it. If it's ice, it's ice. If it's heat, it's heat. But to try to stay mobile to keep the joints moving at least, because that really helps with the stiffness and some of the pain symptoms. Occasionally, we are having some people come in for injections. Um, if it's very severe, and we're keeping our social distance and limiting the number of injections. But a couple people a week who are 
getting to the point that they're starting to crawl around on the floor, we might go ahead and give them an injection. But outside of that, I'm just telling people, stay the course. Uh, we'll be back. And yeah, I know the arthritis pain is bad, but we can get through this. And sometimes it's a little bit of mind over matter. Haven't you been impressed, too, when you talk to the patients, that they're all so accepting to what we're going through and what they're going through? We've had very little pushback because our patients are concerned about coming to the hospital to have a hip or knee replaced right now as well. And they understand the predicament that we're in. Yeah, it, it's been surprisingly good. Usually my patients call a lot more frequently. They've been pretty good despite not having surgery and having to kind of understand that they're putting this off for a little while. So yeah, I've been pretty impressed. The whole country's kind of rallying around what they're doing, what they're supposed to do. This has certainly put a different perspective on things, I think, for both us as surgeons and patients. And we've seen something very similar here as well, that the vast majority of our patients have been very accepting of the delays and need to reschedule surgery and their clinic appointments. For our listeners and members, we do have a recent article that we've posted on the coronavirus directed towards patients, and you can get that through the patient portal. And we also have physical therapy exercises available there as well for patients to use during this time. I would next like to move on and ask both of you how your practice is currently handling your ambulatory clinics. Who are you still seeing in person, if anyone, and how are you making those decisions? In the last three weeks, I have personally seen two patients in the office. My PAs saw maybe 12 or 15 divided by two clinic days. And I had, they did a telemedicine clinic one day and I did a telemedicine clinic this week and saw 12 or 13 by telemedicine. I saw one patient while I was at the office doing my telemedicine clinic so I could document it appropriately. And I, I saw one patient who was there because he had a physical therapy visit. And so I saw him. And then yesterday, I saw another surgeon in town who had, just as Brett mentioned, knee arthritis significantly limited his ability to, to work. And so I injected his knee for him. But otherwise, we're doing everything by telemedicine or telephone and really limiting what we see in our office from a joint perspective. Certainly, if somebody is concerned and we can't tell what's going on, if they're concerned about could they have an infection, then we, we end up bringing those patients in. There are four of us who do joints. My partners have been doing more of that. They understand the other hats that I'm wearing right now. So they've really stepped up and taken some of that burden off of me. Yeah, we're doing the same. We're seeing some acute follow-ups, people who have questions or concerns about their wound or their recovery. A lot of the stuff has been fantastic. Telemedicine has been great. We've done a lot of that. And when people come to the office, we're, we're kind of really uh, taking it nice and slow where no one's allowed to put a lot of people on a schedule at all. So there's never more than 10 people in a room, keeping the social distancing six feet apart. Everybody's screened when they come in. So doctors and patients are screened, make sure they don't have a fever. Everybody's wearing a mask. And so um, even with all the precautions, we're still seeing very few patients and our number of, uh, of telemedicine visits are going way up, which has been very good. But we're also making sure that we are available in case patients do need to physically be seen and we want to make sure they know that they're not being abandoned. So if there's any questions or any issues, all of us are between the doctors and physician assistants, all of us are making sure that we're seeing those people face-to-face -face as needed. Now, it's really been nice that some of the guidelines around telemedicine have been relaxed so that we can use it more readily during this period of time. And now that we see how helpful it is, let's hope that some of that relaxation continues because our patients seem to love it. To be able to check somebody's post-op total knee 
while they're sitting in their rocking chair at home in the same place they normally do their exercises is really pretty nice. You had both referred to telemedicine and how you've been able to adopt that into your practice. We're working on something similar. I'd be curious to see if you can share your experience with learning on the fly and if you guys are using telephone or video platforms and any tips or tricks for the members that are struggling to adopt telemedicine. Yeah, I must admit that I was spoiled rotten. My assistant PA had it all set up for me. They actually, they thought I'd be extremely slow. I usually have a very busy clinic and we'll see 90 patients in a day. And but they knew I'd be horrible at this because I'm old. And so they had a telemedicine patient established for me every 30 minutes. And it was going to take me all day to see 12 or 13 patients. They quickly realized that wasn't going to work. And so they were using the, I'm going to blank on the name, but one of the uh, platforms that's easily used. And patient has a waiting room. You see which patients are waiting for you. You click on their name and the video comes up and you're looking at them. They're looking at you and it could not be any easier. After that experience this Wednesday, I, I literally said, once we get our post-op film from a total knee, I could see most of my patients in this fashion and see them very readily and they'd waste no time sitting in our waiting room. The one thing that we haven't been doing yet is we have aggressively implemented some promise into our EPIC and we're not getting promise, our promise date on these patients. So we're, we're missing out on that. And that's something that would be a, a challenge to do long-term if you want to collect the data. Yeah, I don't know that I have any particular tips or tricks other than that. It really wasn't that hard to set up. Each one of us set up our own computer. It was a, a program to download it right into the web browser and then it linked up with our EMR and it was, it was very easy for that. For other patients who have more of issues as far as getting on a computer or don't have access to a computer, we've done FaceTime videos just through the phone or whatever phone platform they have. We've also just done some phone calls. Sometimes it's just a matter of the patient wants to hear your voice and be able to bounce some things off of you and just get that feeling of comfort that you know, a little bit of swelling is okay after surgery or, or, or whatever it might be. So, or a temperature of 100.3 is, is not something to, to panic about. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's actually been great. And I, I really do hope that this, this, you know, continues on moving forward um, because patients really hate driving sometimes an hour, two hours to come see me, wait in the waiting room for an hour and a half. Um, when if they get an x-ray done local, I look at the x-ray, I see them online. We chat for a few minutes. I think they'd be happier with that. Yeah, it's ridiculous. They come and they wait on us and they see us and we see them for a couple of minutes and tell them everything's fine. Then they go back home and otherwise do it this way and they get their answer very quickly. And we've done some telephone stuff too. But I tell you what, once you do it with video, you really do see that a picture's worth a thousand words and the video for a total knee is worth a multiple of that. I'd like to change gears for a minute and talk about what precautions you each are personally taking at work. Brett, you had mentioned a few things you guys are doing in clinic, but I think our members might like to know how far have you guys gone in terms of protection? We are uh, doing uh, a substantial amount as far as washing our hands more than I think I've ever done in my life. Between that and making sure that we either use a hand washer or a sanitizer, we're keeping our social distance, we're all wearing masks, and everybody's being screened. And then in the operating room, we have limited people in the operating room for intubation and extubation of the patient. And uh, we're wearing the respirator masks in the operating room or around any patients who are being intubated. So, I mean, personally, we're really trying to take care of ourselves as well as our patients. And some of the things from our institution have shown that really you can cut down on the transmission of this uh, virus if you if you just really do a good, a good job of hand hygiene. So we're really focused on that. 
Yeah, we I certainly agree with that. We've taken a similar approach. Of course, like everyone else, we had moved very far down the spectrum as far as hand washing was concerned and had been for months, have been doing video checks, et cetera, to make sure that we're all complying with hand washing anyway. So we're all in the habit, but now we do it much more. It's not just before you go in a patient's room and after you go in a patient's room. It's when you go in the workroom, when you do whatever you do. But you know, Ben, the main thing I do, I just stay away from work. So literally this week, this is Friday, and this is the first time this week that I went to the university. I literally have worked in my office at home all week. We have two meetings a day for our, when we, the EOC room or our, essentially our war room, our response to COVID. So we have an early morning meeting and late afternoon meeting to catch up and make sure that the team is all on board. And that's how I start and, and in my, most of my, usually my university work day is with those meetings. And then I just do meetings from the home all day. And I went today only because we had some tougher challenges that we thought it'd be good to have a small group of people talk about. But when I was at, going to the university more, and especially last week when I was there, one of the things I've done is I'm a stair walker now. I think the elevators are the worst possible place to be. And so I am walking flights of stairs now. And unfortunately, the orthopedic floor is on the ninth floor. I told my, my partners I was afraid I might have an MI before I died of COVID. Well, that is great stuff. And I think it is very interesting that we've really commented on how this is going to change how we deliver education. It's going to deliver how we deliver healthcare moving forward. I think it's also going to change how we have meetings from an administrative standpoint, both in our organizations and in our institutions. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point about for our organizations. We've all been doing conference calls for decades, or at least I've been doing them for decades now for organizational calls. And I'm sure we all do the same thing. We're, we're on the call, but we're also reading our emails and doing whatever else we need to do. And we're muted when we're not talking. And then you're not quite as engaged as all of a sudden when you're on Zoom, you're totally engaged because you're part of the conversation and you get more of the information when you're watching the person talk and you know that you need to be paying attention because people can tell if you're not. In terms of protection, one last comment that we found is we've gone to masks uh, throughout the facilities. I think most facilities in the U.S. have, and it's definitely not something that our clinic nurses and staff are used to, and we've really tried to lead the way to support them and make sure they understand how to use those masks appropriately, keep them up on their face, try not to touch their face. So I think there are still great roles for us in orthopedics to act as leaders and demonstrate by example what we need to be doing during this time. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's important for us as leaders to, when we see social distancing not happening in our hospitals, it's up to us to say, just like if somebody forgets to wash their hands, you say, hey, by the way, it's easy to forget. And you may have forgotten, but you're really not six feet apart right now. And can you still do this business and stay six feet apart to help protect everybody? And you know, the response is good. People want to do the right thing, but we're just not used to it. The last topic I'd like to cover today, we alluded to at the beginning of our podcast, and I'd like to get both of your opinions on advice for surgeons on how to restart their elective practices. There's a lot of unknowns right now of who's going to start when across the country and how that's going to be dictated, but I do think there's some general principles we can use to guide us when the time comes to restart. I'd like to get both of your thoughts on that topic. Yeah, I think this is something we're all going to struggle with. When is it time, right? And I think it most likely will be 
for us probably four weeks or so after our peak and we'll hopefully be able to start back to work. And we don't know the guidelines yet. Our testing is still limited. Hopefully by then we have better, faster tests that are more readily available. Are we going to need to test our patients beforehand to make sure that they either have antibodies or don't have the virus? And we're not sure about that. We think we'd like to be able to. Should we be testing ourselves and our coworkers? And if so, how often? And we really don't know the answers to that. And um, we talked today, I have 90 something patients who are being rescheduled. I think our department has 700 and something. And it's said, as we get ready to bring them back, how do you do it? Some of it will depend upon PPE, right? So if you have limited PPE, you don't want to do 20 hand cases in a day that are very quick cases with a high turnover early on because you use up your PPE. So our longer spine cases, maybe the ones in for the department who start back faster, if it's indeed that we have limited PPE. If we don't, we'll go to those who we think have either been on the list longest or have the worst problems. And so now we're kind of working through that list to figure out who that is. And we thought those who are the nicest to us throughout this process and tolerate this, we'll want to have them high on the list. As we talked about earlier, people have been so accepting of this that there's really not much differentiation there. People um, really seem to get it. We'll certainly look upon our infectious disease specialists and our virologists to help us when to start back and how to start back. And from a total joint perspective, we're actually going to be in a better situation than we've ever been in our particular hospital because one of the things we did as part of our surge is we our orthopedics is on the ninth floor, which is our top floor, and we converted the only two wards on the ninth floor to all negative pressure rooms. So those rooms are actually going to be some of the safest rooms in the hospital once we go back to operating. And that, that's one of the biggest problems we're about to face. We're trying to meet this uh, head on and get out in front of it because we're trying to be fair and equitable within our group who gets to start back with cases and looking at the acuity of the cases, looking at, as Larry mentioned, the, the different types of cases and the amount of protective equipment that it might use. So um, yeah, this is going to be difficult because we have, I think there's a, roughly around 40 something surgeons in our group and everybody wants to get started on the day that they tell us to go and everybody wants to be full bore on the day that we start going, which is not going to be the case. And that's why we're, we're meeting as um, a separate committee within our group to try to come out with the, the ramp up strategy how many cases per day, what cases we're looking at. And uh, it's going to take a team effort. But but I think um, just as the patients have been pretty accepting, I think at the moment now, we're becoming more accepting. And, uh, and I think we're going to rally as a team and, and make this happen to ramp up so that everyone's taken care of and we all get back on track in a safe manner. Your point's well made. We think there's this gigantic pent-up demand for patients to get their joints replaced. We may find out that that demand's not as strong as we think it is because you think about it, Patients are concerned about going to the hospital, having a joint replacement. They are also, many of the younger ones who have jobs have not been working so that they get an opportunity to go back to work. They may not want to take PTO time to go have a joint replacement. And others have had financial challenges and are going to say, I don't want to, I don't want to pay copays, et cetera, at this stage. I think I'll wait. So we're not sure exactly what it's going to be. We do have a study, multi-institutional study we're doing looking at surveys of patients who are actually on the waiting list to see what their thoughts are at this stage. And so hopefully we'll get that out soon. But it'll be interesting to see how patients respond 
when they're given the opportunity to have their joints done now. It's going to be interesting, too, to see the response within our subspecialties of who is able to get back faster and which patients want to go back. And I think there's certainly going to be some regional components and cultural components as to when patients will want to come back. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. And I think we're each going to have to decide, do we go to those bigger revisions right out of the gate? Do we try to move high volume primary uh, arthroplasty cases? And that's certainly going to depend on your local and regional situation and what you have for resources. I'd like to thank both of you for taking time out of your day for our members. I think this is very informative and hopefully uh, everyone finds this to be helpful information and hope that you stay safe during these times. Ben, Brett, thank you very much. I've enjoyed spending time with you today. Thank you guys. It's been great. And uh, for all of our patients, just stay patient out there. We're going to be back. We're going to take care of you, but we're going to do it in a safe manner. Everyone be safe. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.